We're going to continue our series in Acts chapter 9, the first 19 verses. And this morning, we're going to talk about passion, and we're going to talk about how God takes somebody who is an incredibly passionate person in Saul and transforms Saul um, into an incredibly passionate person, but in a different way, and how God continues to do that in us with our passions, with our desires, with the things that get us fired up, that God calls us to be transformed in our passions and in our desires, that we might follow him in a way that is faithful, which glorifies him and professes him as Lord. To that end, let's pray that God meets us in our time of thinking about the party of God in transforming our passions. Father, we ask that you meet us this morning. Uh, meet us in the power of your word. And may we be encouraged this morning by what it is that you have to say, how you give us the story of Saul, a man with great passion and zeal for God. And you take that passion and you move it and you tweak it and you change it so that, Lord, it brings you glory. And that it brings more people to know who you are. And it brings people into that relationship that transforms them in the same way it transforms Saul. Lord, might we hear these words for our heart today through the power of your spirit and through the work of Jesus Christ in such a way that we can continue to have our passions, our desires, the things that we get really zealous for, that those things can be transformed in a way which glorifies you. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I um, went to high school, I graduated from high school in 1991, that means I was in high school in the late 80s, as part of my um, stuff in high school, I, like many of you, had part-time jobs. One of my part-time jobs was actually working in a local auto shop for a guy from the church that I attended, he, he owned the auto shop, and he asked me if I wanted to come in and do a lot of sweeping and changing oil and and uh, changing tires and doing just the basics because I have very, I had no training whatsoever in what it means to be a mechanic. I learned a lot while I was there, but I still probably can't do 99% of the stuff that Paul, um, Paul Wagner and others can do in this church. Um, but because I was in that environment, in an auto shop, and you're around car guys, or car people, I guess I should say, who's a car person here? Who's a, who likes cars? And, okay, well, I'm around those people. And if you're around those people, then, then you sort of get a passion built for cars. The owner of the shop where I worked had a 1972 Ford Thunderbird in absolutely mint condition. It was a beautiful car. He'd spent a lot of time and energy on it. One of the mechanics there had a 67 Camaro that he had restored and it was beautiful. It was candy apple red and it had, uh, it, it just looked incredible. It had a big engine in it and it was just fun to see him drive up in it. Um, another guy, I don't know why he got excited about a 1978 Caprice Classic, but he did. Um, and he completely redid this Caprice Classic. So it was shiny and good and chrome everywhere. Like it was the perfect, beautiful old man's car, if you remember what the Caprice Classic was. But then there was a guy who was my age, who was also in the shop, and because both of us were passionate about cars, we were like, okay, what do we want to start working on? And I, at that point, I, 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 I never really got a car that I wanted to uh, really soup up cars that I got from my parents. My dad always bought junky cars, and so we never had a good car in our family. And I always wanted to do a rabbit, Volkswagen rabbit, but never could find a one that I wanted to do. This guy, though, did find a car that he wanted to work on. 
And he wanted to do something different. He thought if he worked on this car and really souped it up, got it looking good, that when he was older, like maybe, um, you know, like 10, 15 years later, it'd be really valuable because it was sort of an eclectic car. 1976 Ford Pinto. Anybody remember the 1976 Ford Pinto? Did anyone have a 76 Ford Pinto? Jim, that doesn't even surprise me a lick that you had a Ford Pinto. Doesn't surprise me at all. Ford Pinto was built in an era of cars where, A, we were in gas crisis, if you remember that at that time, and so they made all the engines smaller with very little power, and so this car had very little power, so he went out and he found a bigger engine and he put it in there because he thought that would soup it up and make it a really good hot rod. Um, but the Ford Pinto had a reputation. Does anybody w- remember what part of the car had a reputation? What, car- what part of the car? The gas tank. The reputation was this, that if you were driving down the road and if you stopped at an intersection and somebody from the back rear-ended you, the gas tank was situated in such a place that the gas tank would rupture, possibly light on fire, and in fact, they know that there was anywhere between 64, I looked it up this morning, 64 and 180 deaths in North America attributed to accidents with the Ford Pinto, so much so that it had recalls and they ended up stopping making the car in 1980 because it just wasn't selling well. But this guy was passionate about this car. Oh, he was passionate. It was a cream-colored 1974 74 Ford Pinto with beige racing stripes. And it had rust issues that he had to fix every year. He put actually, um, not kidding you, he put a spoiler in the back, airfoil, so that keep the rear wheels on the tire, but it was underpowered. It didn't run well. It was, because it was such a heavy car, um, it just, it never had get up and go. And all of us in the shop, he would tell us the things that he was doing and he's rebuilding the valves and he's doing this with the camshaft and he's doing this with this and that's the other thing and getting this part. And we're like, dude, what are you doing? Why are you taking this passion that you have for cars and ability, because he had ability to fix cars, and putting it into a Ford Pinto? Like, really, man? Find something else. His passion was a great passion, but it was really in the wrong direction. Now, I'm sure if you tried to buy a 1974 Ford Pinto today, it would probably cost a little bit of money because they probably are considered some sort of classic car, however that works, whatever. But it certainly wouldn't be value, as valuable as a 69 Camaro. Or it wouldn't be as valuable as a 72 Ford Thunderbird. Focusing our passions in the correct place is really the subject of our passage this morning from Acts chapter 9. We're going to meet a person with great passion and zeal. His name is Saul. Let's begin there, first two verses of Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, there's a couple things that I want you in those verses to notice right away. First of all, I want you to notice that Christ's story had spread. 
Now, many of you, some of you have been to Israel. You know where, maybe you have an idea where Damascus is. From Jerusalem, Damascus is to the north and to the east. It's about two to three days journey if you're walking, which most people did. We don't know if Paul was on horses or if he walked. It would take him a while to get there. But the fact that Damascus was a place where there's possibly new Christians meant that the gospel had spread. If it started in Jerusalem at Pentecost with Peter giving his testimony in the temple, And certainly it had hit Galilee. Galilee was actually on the way to Damascus. But Damascus meant that the gospel was really spreading. That people were learning more about who Jesus was. So first of all, understand that the power of the Holy Spirit was disseminating the gospel into various places. And also notice that Saul is part of the counter-movement. Now Saul you don't know who Saul is, Saul is really part of the religious hierarchy. He's one of the higher level Jews in Jerusalem. He's one of the sort of chosen few who probably would wear the priestly garb and would be a part of some of the stuff that was going on in the temple. He was part of really the establishment of the uh, the Jewish religion And so the Jewish religion was recognizing that, hey, the gospel is going out. It may be in Damascus, maybe in in Caesarea, maybe in some of these other places. We need to stop that from happening. And so the the high priest says to to Saul, sure, go, go over there. Find some people who are professing Jesus and yeah, bring them back. We'll throw them in prison because we can't have any more of this. If this thing keeps going, who knows what it's gonna do to Jews throughout Israel. Who knows what it's going to do to our authority and to our power. And now we can look at this and we can see Saul and we can say, but Saul's zeal for all this just seems so dumb. Like, really? But for him, it makes all the sense in the world. Because if he is zealous for an Old Testament God, then the the Old Testament God says that if, if there is any other God but me, if anyone is professing any other God but me, what do you do to them? You find them. Oftentimes, if you look at Old Testament law, you stone them. Even You certainly stop them from doing what they're doing. And Paul is that Old Testament Jew guy. And so it makes sense for him to have this sort of zeal. He felt like he was honoring God with his life. But we see, of course, that God wanted something else for him. Now, for us to ask that question, are we honoring God with our lives? Certainly some of us would say, we think so, yes. I think that this is what God wants me to do. I think this is the occupation I'm supposed to have. I think that this is the relationships that I'm supposed to be building. I think that these are the passions that I'm supposed to be living out in my life. But for us to ask that question in the same way that God asked that question of Paul is is an important thing because certainly God is continuing to be at work in us. There are things that at one point in my life that I was very zealous for. But I'm no longer. Why? Because God has continued to do his work of transforming me. So for us to ask that question continually, what is God doing in me that is new? How is God changing me now? How how is God making me different in my 40s than in my 30s than in my 20s than in my teens? Because God is that sort of God. He is not comfortable with us simply arriving at a destination at a certain time and then living the rest of our lives in that 
place, the same spot, because he continues to say to us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to be changed and transformed. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. And that's a truth for every day. And so for us to ask that question about the passions and the things that God is doing in us today, what is God doing in us that is new? Let's continue verse 3 and 4. As he neared Damascus on the journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We'll continue reading. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. Now again, notice a couple things. First of all, how Christ shows up in Saul's life. He shows up in this great light. And that's an important thing for us to hear here because God shows up in light things. He shows up with goodness. He shows up in, in, in leading Paul here in saying, here is something that is, 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 is bright and changes you so much so that it blinded him. It had so much power that it took away Saul's ability to do what he was doing to that point. But notice too that he also asks Paul to continue his journey. He doesn't say to him, turn back to Jerusalem. He could have. Who was in Jerusalem, right? You had all the disciples were in Jerusalem. Certainly some, one of those could have discipled Saul and who he was and, and made, him, uh, made him understand who Jesus was. But instead, God says to Saul, keep going. Keep going the direction that you're going. But when you get there, I'm going to change how you understand this new place that you're in. I'm going to do work here in a way that you don't anticipate. You'll also notice that Christ doesn't do the discipling himself, Right? When Saul stopped on the road, Christ could have, could have spoken to Saul for the next hour and said, hey, here, Saul, here is what you need to understand. Here are the things that you need to change. Here is how you take your new passion for me and be transformed by it. But Christ doesn't do that. Christ meets Saul and says, keep going, and then I'm going to send somebody. And it's really interesting, actually, in a moment when we get there, you'll understand what I'm saying. Really interesting why he sends the person that he does for Saul to meet. Because he wants the church to be the church. He wants the Ananias as the person. He wants Ananias to live into the work that he's going to call him towards in the future. He wants, he wants him to start that work already with Saul. And notice, too, you got three days that Saul is blind. Now, I read this stuff, and you know I'm always curious when I read the scriptures. I'm just wondering what's happening during that three days. Anyone else wonder? We hear nothing, right? There's nothing in the text about what happens during that three days. We know that he didn't eat or didn't drink. So he was confronted with this light of 
light, transforming light of Christ. He heard the voice. He was told to go to Damascus. And then when he got there, he sat for three days. And we hear Saul say nothing. I wonder what that three days looked like. You had to imagine him. And maybe you've been in this place when something huge happens in your life that you're just spending time working it through. Anyone had that? That something happens and you need some time to process it. I think of, I think of specifically when my parents got divorced. I remember being in church the next Sunday, uh, I think they told me on like a Friday. On Sunday, I went to church in the morning and then we had evening church at that church. So I went to evening church. And I remember in that moment, like it was the start of my processing what my parents had, had done and the implications of that. And I just remember weeping tears and just being in my head with my own pain and my own frustration. And then the next week, I almost don't remember what that week was. I remember driving around a lot. I remember sitting in my office a lot. I remember reading a lot of scripture. I remember Kristen and I having a lot of conversations, but I don't remember what those conversations were about because I was in such a fog. I think Saul is in a fog. I think he's in a fog of just saying, okay, what is my life about? I have been doing all these things. I have been a good Jew. We hear from Saul when he gets renamed to Paul a little later on, all the things that, about his Jewishness that are perfect. He's, he's been circumcised on the right day. He's from the right family. He's done all the right things. And you can imagine him in this fog of being confronted with the light of Christ, just going, what's my life about? Here I am persecuting the one who met me on the road to Damascus and he's telling me, that he's going to blind me. And he's going to stop me from doing this. What does the rest of my life look like? It's almost this existential three days. And I think that that's actually the powerful time that God uses. I, I don't expect that God even spoke to Saul during that time. He left him to himself. Sure, he was probably present. I know he was because God is like that. But he left him to that spot in order to just spend some time working through the truth that he had been confronted with. When that happens in our lives, for us to spend some time wondering. Kristen will tell you that I'm too much of a thinker sometimes. But that's part of how I work. I want to consider what God is doing in me, what God is doing around me, what God is calling me towards. And sometimes that can almost be thinking to the point of paralysis. And I need to be pushed and challenged sometimes to move forward. But I think that that's important for us as followers of Jesus. For us even this week ahead, think about what God is doing in your life. I know that God is changing many of your lives. You are at pivotal times. You are at times of retirement. Maybe you're at times of changing jobs or you're certainly in 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 family transitions. You're in, who knows, health transitions, whatever it is. For us to consider and spend some time, maybe three days, maybe it's shorter, maybe it's longer, wondering, okay, God, what are you doing? What is it that you are moving in me? How is it that you're transforming me? And now this man shows up, and this is such an interesting part of this story. I was really confronted by that this week. Verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias... Yes, Lord, he answered. 
The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. So we know he's praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. The Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, first of all, notice the first words that we hear Ananias speak. What are they? What are the first words that Ananias says? Yes, Lord. So God calls to him. He says, yes, Lord. So in a sense, he's saying, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to do what it is that you call me to do. But then he's confronted with the reality of what God has called him to do. And he hesitates. Right? Turn back in your scriptures to a couple pages. Acts chapter 5. What does the chapter begin with? Who? Who? Do you find it interesting that God in three chapters of the scriptures where God is sovereign and can bring whoever he wants into the story, has another Ananias show up where he calls Ananias to be obedient. Ananias initially says yes, but then gets hesitant to do it. Anyone else find that interesting? Because God is sovereign. How many Moseses are there in the Bible? There's one that we know of. We don't know of other Moseses. There could have been, this could have been Stephen. This could have been, I don't know, any other name, but it's Ananias. Do you think that maybe God is showing the difference between how the Ananiases responded? God called Ananias and Sapphira to obedience. They said, yes, we would. But then they said, no, but we're going to do it our way. And we see what happened. If you remember that sermon, it was all about how the community was radically altered and transformed and their joy was taken away. In this story, Ananias says, yes, Lord, I'll do it, then gets hesitant, but then God convinces him to go and go speak to Saul. What happens as a result of that obedience? The great evangelist of the scriptures, whom we read weekly, most of us, is converted, starts to write, does his thing, and the gospel is spread to the ends of the world. That's the difference. Here's one man being obedient to what God has called him to, to go into the life of this man who has great passion and great zeal, be a part of Christ's transformation in that man's life. And because Ananias II is obedient to that call, Saul is transformed and the gospel explodes throughout the world. That's the power of obedience. 
And I find it so interesting that we have in these chapters separated by only three or four pages, we have these two Ananias show up who are confronted with a very similar choice and the difference of the consequence that each one has. One disobedience, death. One obedience, life and the gospel going out. The second Ananias has an opportunity to redeem his name for God's glory, and he does. And friends, for us to hear that and then be challenged, because oftentimes we have these same things that we're confronted with that both Ananiases have been confronted with. We are confronted with something that we're willing to do, but then we become hesitant because it's hard. And the first opportunity it comes and it doesn't work out for us and we're fearful and we're not obedient and we don't do what it is that God calls us to do. And something is lost because of it. And yet we get another chance because God is a God of grace and so many second chances in our lives and he calls you and he calls you to that same thing or maybe it in a different way and he gives you opportunity to redeem what it is that you can be obedient towards. And maybe he's doing that for you today. And maybe he's doing that in your life right now. So that thing that you, you pushed off before, that thing that you walked away from, that thing that you didn't do because it was too hard. And he puts it in front of you now and he says, will you be obedient? Here's your chance. It's your second chance to redeem your name in the same way that this Ananias in Damascus redeemed his name with obedience. For us to be challenged by that. Because we see what happens here. Listen to these words from verses 17 and on. And Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming, has sent me so that you may see again, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. And he got up, and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So for three days, we know he's been praying, but we don't know anything else. And suddenly, this man comes who has been hesitant, but is obedient, and speaks God's truth into Saul's life. And suddenly this physical change happens and I don't even know necessarily what to do with the scales falling from his eyes except to say that before in his zealousness he was blind to what God was doing and the scales falling off showed him what was true. Jesus Christ was true and now he could confess the name of Jesus. But I notice right away what Saul does. He gets up, what does he do next? He gets up and he was... Okay, why is that a big deal? For us, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal. Of course, if you're going to be a Christian, you get baptized. Remember who Saul is. He's a Jew. Okay, if you are a Jew, the absolute and complete sign of you no longer living into your Jewishness is for you to be baptized. We don't hear a word from Saul's mouth. He says nothing. He responds to Ananias in no way, shape, or form. He has no words for him. He simply knows God has done something in his life. Now he can see. And when God has done something in your life, in gratitude, you obey him. You get up 
and you live into that obedience. And that obedience means that his zealousness for all the things before was over. And now his zeal and his passions are sold out to Jesus for the rest of his life. And we see the result of that. I mean, this is the same guy who writes about how shipwrecks are a faith-building exercise. This is the guy who in prison sings songs. This is a guy who is willing to get beaten and flogged. He is willing to get kicked out of towns over and over and over again. He is willing to ultimately be sent on a ship that gets shipwrecked a couple times along the way, all the way to Rome, stand in the presence of Caesar and declare who God is. This guy's zeal in that moment is so transformed, moving towards this this thing. And the sign of that thing is this baptism being made new. We talk about baptism sometimes. We talk about a cleansing. That's so good. But you know the other image of, of baptism? You go down into the water and you die. And when you come out of the water, you're in new life. Paul's living into new life. Now, friends, I'm not bringing a tub up here for you to be rebaptized today. That's something that I struggle with a lot. That rebaptism, I think, is, is actually um, a pretty big deal. And if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that. But what I will say is this. You have been baptized. And if you know the Holy Spirit, and if you know the sovereign God, who is the sovereign God that he is, he is doing new things in your life. And he is calling you to live into that new life. He is calling you to live into these new things. These things that he is constantly moving and transforming in you. And the question so often that we ignore is, how do I do it? What do I do next? Because we're fearful. Friends, do not be afraid. For the same God who was with Saul till he was Paul, until he was through all the things that he was through, glorifying God along the way is the same God who is calling you. And the question so often that we need to answer for ourselves is, am I willing to obey? We talk about this whole sermon series as a party, right? I mean, that's the image that we've been using, and sometimes I do look at your faces and wonder what kind of party you're at. I I sort of wonder that sometimes. But I will say this. I know a lot of your stories, and I know that so many of you have been transformed over the course of your life in the party. God has done things. God has moved you. He's brought you through a lot of hard stuff. He's changed and transformed you. Sometimes you backslide. Sometimes it seems like things are worse than they were before. Sometimes it seems like they're so much better than they were before. But what I can tell you is this. I know that so many of you have been changed by the presence of the Holy Spirit, that your involvement in the community of the church and the party that God has called us to here that that has made you someone different. I can say it for myself. I've been here for eight years. It's actually eight years next month. And I am a very different person than I was when I came. And it has everything to do with what the Holy Spirit has done in me because the Holy Spirit has done new things. But I have to ask the question for Scott, what is he doing next? 
What new thing is he transforming in me? What new thing is he opening? What door is open now? What window has he pulled the shade on so I can see his light in a way so that I can move towards it in faithfulness, asking the question, Lord, how do I glorify you anew in this thing? Because for me to stay in the place where I am right now, a year from now, two years from now, to be in the same place, that's not, that's not following Jesus. Because if I'm following Jesus, the Holy Spirit is continuing to show up in me. So ask this question. Am I different than I was a year ago? Am I different than I was two years ago, three years ago, four years ago? What things do I need to be praying for God to make new in my life? And when he does make it new or when he does show me something, maybe I'm praying for this, but he shows me this. When he does that, how do I move towards it in faithfulness? that he will continue his transformation in me in the same way that he did it with Paul. And see, here's the thing. We know how Paul entered into the next stage, right? He was all in. He was fired up. He was, he was not sitting on his hands. He was not standing singing songs like this. All right? He was not he was not you know just sort of moping around about the spirit. The guy was all in. He was going where his zeal and his passion and his Jesus was calling him and he went with all that he had and with everything that he did. Friends, that's what we're called to. We're called to love the Lord our God with what? Say that one word again. How many of you have passion? All of you put your hands up, by the way. It's just a question of what you have passion for. I know some of you have passion for the Lakers. I'm not sure why, but you do. The Angels, the Broncos, sorry folks. You have passion for your kids. You have passion for your marriage. You have passion for your home. You have passion, I look at Debbie back there, you have passion for crafts and the things that you can make with your hands. You have passions for your business. You have passions for politics. You have passions for whatever it is. But if we are called to love the Lord our God with what? All. It means that we take all of our passion and we love it. Sometimes you throw me off, lady. I love it. I love it. I love it. Don't stop it. But I'm like, what am I saying next though? Yeah, all right. See, that's passion. And I mean that. With all. Everything. Take those things. And it doesn't mean you stop them. If you've got a passion for a 1974 poor Ford Pinto, go ahead. But do it for the glory of God. If you've got a passion for making food, make food that glorifies God and shares it with others. If you've got a passion for your kids, tell them the story of Jesus in such a way that it transforms their life. If you've got a passion for the Lakers, I don't know what to do with that, but do something that glorifies God in that. Do it in such a way that you can say at the end of every day, whatever passions that I've lived into today, I've lived into these passions all that I have for the glory of God. That's what we learn from Saul. That's what we learn from his word. And that should challenge us and move us and transform us as we go from this place. Let's pray to that end. Father God,
You have given us passion and zeal in the same way you did to Saul. You've moved us and transformed us. Even as we look back on the story that you've told in our lives over the last five, maybe 10, 15, 20 years, maybe 50 years, we see, Lord, where you have transformed us, moved us in new ways. But Lord, may we never stop asking the question, what new thing is God doing in me? What new thing is God doing around me that I can be involved in, in his faithfulness, that I can, I can serve him with his glory? What all? What new all is God calling me to that I may love him with it, with everything that I am? That's work that only you can do. We ask that you do it today in Christ. Amen.